Welcome, everyone. My name is Reverend Marisol Caballero. You can call me Reverend Mari. And this is First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a liberal beacon in the middle of central Austin, and we welcome you, whether it's your 50th time here or your 50th year here or your very first. Uh, we like to start off every service by saying, you know, we come from a long heritage that recognizes there's a spark of divinity in each and every one of us. So before we get further into the service, please do turn in all directions, greet people around you, and say hello to a little piece of God. Please join us in the words by which we light our chalice. They're found in your orders of service. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. Our call to worship today is by Angela Herrera. Don't leave your broken heart at the door. Bring it to the altar of life. Don't leave your anger behind. It has high standard and the world needs vision. Bring them with you and your joy and your passion. Bring your loving and your courage and your conviction. Bring your need for healing and your power to heal. There is work to do and you have all that you need to do it right here in this room. Spirit of life and of love, God of many names, comfort us in such trying and confusing and heart-wrenching times. Be with us as we mourn with communities around the world who suffer, who are truly not safe. Be with us and with those we care about as we struggle with depression and other mental illness, as we struggle with stress of financial straits and family instability. But be with us also as we celebrate all that is our life, all the joy that we can find in friendship and in love, the beauty of nature, the comfort of friendship. For these and other silent prayers of our hearts, we say amen. I'll never forget a story Meg once told me about how she tried to explain male privilege to a man who, despite her best efforts, still didn't get it. She said, women live with various levels of fear 100% of the time. Men don't have to. I'd never heard it put that way before and had never even considered it in those terms. But yes, I don't walk around looking over my shoulder, paranoid in a constant state of panic, but it's nonetheless true. I think that in our heart of hearts, it's true for most women. I think that a certain level of naivete can be expected from those women who don't carry around a healthy dose of such fear. History and experience have taught us this. The annual statistics of rape and sexual assault in this country alone 
are staggering. And that's only counting the women who muster the courage and, more importantly, have the support systems in place to come forward and report these crimes. Margaret Atwood once said, Men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. Understanding how tenuous safety is for women, I was shocked when I heard the term used in a starkly different manner by a young Latina activist at National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health's summit in D.C. this past spring. At the outset of the lobbying workshop, the day before we would lobby on Capitol Hill, two presenters made their apologies. Lunch ran long, and we have a ton of material to cover, but everything we're going to cover is, and more is included in your binders for your perusal on your own time before we get to the Hill tomorrow. That being said, we're going to go quickly to cover as much material as we can in the time that we have. Midway through the session, a young woman raised her hand and interrupted. I need to say that I'm feeling very unsafe right now. Can you tell me more about what you mean? Asked one of the facilitators patiently. I'm learning that patience and a high threshold for foolishness are, skilled, are skills required of professional activists slash lobbyists. Yeah, you're presenting a lot of information very, very quickly. Too quickly for my brain to process it all. I feel like this format isn't providing a safe space for every learning style. My learning style isn't being respected, and I just needed to say something about that. The presenters reiterated their earlier disclaimer about time constraints, apologized, and then attempted to slow down the entire presentation. As a result, less material was covered than originally hoped for, and there was less time for questions. The workshop had been hijacked in the name of safety. I've been engaged in, liberal, in liberation movements and have run in activist circles for many, many years now, and have heard the phrase safe space used ad nauseum. In the late 90s, the term was so refreshing. When facilitators of dialogue, professors, excuse me, and organizers introduced a conversation as intentional safe space, it meant that bigotry and disrespect would not be tolerated. That historically marginalized identities would be celebrated and openly acknowledged. Slowly, over time, I watched this prevalent term morph into a perversion of what it once was. Curious by its misuse by a woman of color, a first for me, I approached the woman during the break and told her that I was curious about her use of the word unsafe. Did she truly feel her safety had been threatened? Did she feel like the presenter's admitted, admitted lack of adequate time was somehow an affront to her personally? Did she truly have the expectation that all learning styles and speeds of learning would be catered to in every setting at all times? She was defensive in her response, as expected. I was hoping that her defensiveness, though, signaled that she simply hadn't given enough careful consideration to her word choice. Who knows? 
This interaction disturbed me, though. Obviously, it did. Here I stand talking about it months later. It just, it didn't just annoy me, it disturbed me. I saw it as a symptom of a quickly spreading illness among progressives that conflates comfort with safety and upholds conflict avoidance as a virtue of doing social justice organizing and education. The sheer entitlement that's presumed by using the term safety or safe space is enough to get my suspicious side eye. <laughs> I'll get that out on anyone who uses it nowadays. Though I understand the continued need for and will continue to advocate for spaces and occasions for historically marginalized people and communities to know that they are in the presence of allies, uh, I think the mutation of the understanding of safety and safe space point to deeper, more systemic problems within progressive organizing and get in the way of true growth and hopes of peace. In the early 70s, when Paul Simon penned American Tune, he identified the time as the age's most uncertain hour. Little did he know that uncertainty, war, and violent hatred of difference would not be questions that only his generation would have to grapple with. I had the pleasure of meeting Reverend Osagiefo Seiku at the UU Association's General Assembly this year. His talk had me on my feet. And his humor later at a mutual friend's cookout gave equal levels of profound insight. Seiku, as he's called, is a Baptist minister from the St. Louis area and hails from my alma mater, no less, Union Theological Seminary. Woot, woot. He's become a leading prophetic voice in the Black Lives Matter movement from the ground in Ferguson. He was recently interviewed very recently, a couple days ago it was published, in Yes! magazine about how the nature of this movement has some on the outside looking in a bit squeamish. He says, Martin Luther King ain't coming back. Get over it. It won't look like the civil rights movement. It's angry. It's profane. If you're more concerned about young people using profanity than about the profane conditions they live in, there's something wrong with you. He notes how the leadership in this new civil rights movement is different. Now the leadership that is emerging are the folks who have been in the street, who have been tear-gassed. The leadership is black, poor, queer women. It presents in a different way. It's a revolutionary aesthetic. It's, it's black women, queer women, single mothers, poor black boys with records, kids with tattoos on their faces who sag their pants. When asked about the lack of ethnic diversity in most churches and how that affects this movement, he quotes Chris Crass, one of our own, one of UUism's baddest, and I mean that in the best possible way, white anti-racist writers and organizers. He said, Chris Crass says that the task of white churches is not about how many, of people, how many people of color they have, it's what blow they are striking at white supremacy. 
On Thursday, I was asked to give an opening prayer at a silent march and vigil for Sandra Bland, the black woman killed in police custody this past week right here in Texas. I was pleased to see several of you turn out for this last-minute event. Before we began marching, the organizer announced to the crowd that we would be marching in a particular order. Black people in the front, Latinos behind them, and other varieties of brown bodies behind them, and behind them, everybody else. She made the crowd repeat this a couple of times to make sure it was clear. I was standing next to a member of our congregation who has shown up to stand against injustice many a time. They asked if, what, if I had seen what just happened. They segregated the march. It's great, I said. What? <laughs> yeah, that's what allyship is about. It's about listening for and not presuming how to be of help. About knowing when to lead and when to follow, I said. Fair enough. They responded. I was so moved how this short exchange could move someone from a place of discomfort and confusion, from possibly feeling hurt and excluded, to considering a different narrative, from considering that, okay, maybe it's not about me. We lived in a world where increasingly those who are afforded unearned privileges have unwittingly grown accustomed to an expectation of personal, physical, and emotional comfort. We saw this in the confusion around the name of this new civil rights movement. Many white people and those of color who felt a bit tasked with the caring um, for the comfort of white people didn't like the movement being called Black Lives Matter. Why not all lives matter, they asked and sometimes demanded. I saw a great Twitter post that summed up the why not of this question. It said, what is the impulse behind, it actually said WTF, is the impulse behind changing black lives matter to all lives matter? Do you crash strangers' funerals screaming, I too have felt lost? Do you run through a cancer fundraiser going, there are other diseases too, you know? <laughs> Let's stop expecting personal safety in our justice work. This expectation is the ultimate expression of unchecked privilege, which is not to say that those who catch themselves with their ganglia hanging loose are bad people or even bad allies. It's just to say that when we realize that we can survive it's getting stomped on, we may realize that it was us who dangled it all out before the world in the first place. Friedman of Friedman's Fables, who wrote that, that story I read you, he also wrote that all organisms that lack self-regulation will be perpetually invading the space of their neighbors. The notion of brave space, this is something I like, something I've heard recently, brave space as an alternative to the expectation of safe space is creeping its way into activist communities. It presumes that learning requires levels of risk, vulnerability, and personal transformation. In truth, courage is what we need. After all, safety, if safety is to be conflated with personal comfort, 
How can any group or individual ever be responsible for maintaining the personal comfort of another? Agreeing to disagree is usually a means of avoiding such growth and learning from one another. Instead, we should venture head-on into conflict and controversy with civil yet challenging discourse, taking responsibility for both the intention and the impact of our words and actions, understanding that these may sometimes be incongruent. Our covenant of healthy relations expects this of us, in fact, calling us to communicate with one another directly in a spirit of compassion and goodwill, speak when silence would inhibit progress, disagree from a place of curiosity and respect, interrupt hurtful interactions when we witness them, and to express our appreciation to each other. When was the last time real transformative change happened in your life, in your family, or in your company of employment, or in this church, without their first being high levels of discomfort? Imagine... In each of those situations, if the leaders involved, and sometimes those leaders are you, instead of allowing those growing pains, had done everything in their power to ignore the causes of agitation, minister only to those who felt most personally affronted, and work to maintain the status quo, how would the results have been different? Let's all work together to reel in our exposed ganglia and enter into brave space together. It is, after all, the final frontier. Now please join me in the words by which we extinguish our chalice, also found in your orders of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Go in peace to seek courage in spaces that would otherwise feel unsafe. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.